America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Europe and the country of Germany, a NATO ally central to transatlantic relations. Our guest, Christoph Heusken, is a German diplomat currently serving as the German ambassador to the United Nations. In April 2019 and July 2020, Ambassador Heusken served as president of the Security Council, of which Germany was a non-permanent member during 2019 and 2020. Most recently, Ambassador Hoiskin led negotiations to extend aid deliveries to Syria. Prior to joining the UN, he served for 12 years as Germany's equivalent of the U.S. National Security Advisor to Chancellor Angela Merkel. He was the longest-serving Undersecretary for Foreign and Security Policy in the German Chancellery. Today's Germany began to emerge in the 1850s, as industrialization and rapid economic growth promoted the unification of smaller German states. The Astro-Prussian War of 1866 dissolved the combined Austrian-Prussian Confederation, leaving Prussia in control of the Northern German Confederation, a federal state that comprised 21 German states. However, it took the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to stoke sufficient nationalist sentiment in the southern German states to spur their union with the Northern German Confederation. On January 28, 1871, Otto von Bismarck gained the title of Chancellor of the German Empire. Out of the ashes of World War I, Germany removed the Kaiser from power and established the Weimar Republic. The Republic's progressive political system and relatively advanced welfare state, however, could not survive an unstable economy. Hyperinflation and the 1929 crash of Wall Street led to widespread unemployment and a loss of confidence. Meanwhile, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party gained popularity. The Republic ended on January 30, 1933, when Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Nazi Germany. Hitler enacted constitutional reforms to take command of the military and establish himself as dictator, with goals of bringing racial purity and expanded Lebensraum, or living space, to Germany. Nazi leaders committed one of the greatest crimes in human history, the Holocaust. They used concentration and death camps in a genocide aimed at exterminating Jews. Hitler invaded much of Europe in the Second World War, but in June 1941, Hitler's ambition set conditions for his demise when he invaded Russia. America entered the war following the December 1941 Pearl Harbor attacks, when British Prime Minister Winston Churchill declared, We had won after all. Bloody campaigns were fought in North Africa, Sicily and Italy, and on Germany's eastern and western fronts in Europe, where the Allies prevailed. Today's close relationship with Germany began immediately after the bloodiest war in modern history. In 1945, with an Allied victory in Europe inevitable and the Pacific War still unclear, the United States, United Kingdom, 
and Soviet Union met at the February Yalta Conference, where they agreed to divide Germany into occupation zones, with the initial goal to denazify, demilitarize, and democratize. In East Germany, the Soviet Union stripped factories and demanded land reform and the nationalization of industries. In West Germany, the Allies engaged in economic reconstruction to keep the German market open and prevent the rise of communism. The United States provided significant aid to Europe through the Marshall Plan, which the Soviet Union rejected for the states under its domination. Under Chancellor Konrad Adenauer, West Germany was officially founded in 1949 and gained full sovereignty and NATO membership in 1955. Given the dramatic differences in economic performance and political freedoms between the two Germanys, the 1950s witnessed steady immigration from east to west, which persuaded the East Germans to erect the Berlin Wall in 1961. By 1989, Gorbachev's Soviet Union relinquished control of much of Eastern Europe. East Germans mass-migrated to West Germany, and the Federal Republic of Germany was established on October 3, 1990, during the Peaceful Revolution. The history of Germany, a power located in the middle of Europe, is thus the history of the Western world, for the good and for the bad. And Germany has benefited from U.S. engagement in Europe and is one of the key strategic anchors for the U.S. in Eurasia. The U.S. has helped Germany to reach its current political and economic status, while Germany has helped the U.S. to maintain a beneficial equilibrium of power in Europe. We talk with Ambassador Hoiskin as both the U.S. and Germany will see new federal leadership in 2021 amid challenges including COVID-19, energy scrutiny, transnational terrorism, and election misinformation that threatens to undermine confidence in democratic governance. Ambassador Hoiskin, willkommen aus Battlegrounds. It's great to see you. Let me begin by just by telling you what an honor it was to serve alongside you uh, when we were both national security advisors. You, of course, did the job for Chancellor Merkel for 12 years. And I remember at one point asking you, how is it that you're still alive? It's really an astounding achievement. And I can't think of, of anybody who has more wisdom uh, and experience uh, who we could talk to, to to really help our viewers understand better the challenges we're, we're facing today. And thank you for joining me for what I know will be an enlightening conversation. Oh, thank you very much, HR, for including me into your program. Um, it was indeed a great pleasure working together with you um, at the beginning of the Trump administration. Um, you know, um, I was for 12 years Chancellor Merkel's, um, as you would say in the US, uh, national security advisor. Um, and these were 12 exciting uh, years. And um, now that I'm not working directly for her anymore, I must say um, the chancellor was a fantastic boss, a fantastic politician to, to work with. And um, it was a pleasure to serve my country, to serve the chancellor for these 12 years. Well, Christoph, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to work with you on U.S.-German relations initially to, to set forward an agenda for us to work on together, but then also to work on together within multinational forum, like the Quint Forum that we worked on uh, within uh, together. And, and, uh, and, and of course, it was a contentious time uh, with the Trump administration that was skeptical, I think, of the transatlantic relationship, to put it mildly, that it was making demands in the areas of you know, burden sharing uh, in particular, but also tended to see 
the European Union as, as a trade competitor uh, as much as it did a, an important ally uh, from a geostrategic perspective. And of course, we, we're about to have a change in administrations and, 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 uh, and we're having this change you know, at a time of crisis, Christoph. I mean, you're there in New York now. You've seen us going through the pandemic. You've seen us, you see us go through now the recession associated with the pandemic. You've seen the social divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder and the, the unrest and, and, and protests that, that followed. Uh, and now, of course, the events of, of recent days with this assault on, on the Capitol and this extreme political polarization that has come to light, especially during this vitriolic uh, presidential election. So, Christoph, I'm kind of concerned, you know, Americans are going to want to go into a period of introspection, right, as we should. But we don't want to neglect really what the challenges we're facing abroad and the need for us to work with others, in this case, Germany in particular. So I wonder if you might just share with us what you think is the value of the U.S.-German relationship at this time and what Americans ought to know about what the U.S. and Germany uh, sh should work on together. Yes. Um, first, um let me, from a German perspective, tell you from somebody who um, grew up in, in post-war Germany um, how important this relationship with the U.S. Um, actually uh, is and, and has been. When uh, Germany um, was um, morally and, and physically devastated after the Second World War, it were the Allies, it were in particular the United States that uh, helped us um, again um, uh, have a new start, have a new start um, of a country that is Germany uh, today, a country that is governed by the rule of law, that is governed by democracy, that is uh, governed by a social um, market economy. And uh, this, our, our constitution, the new constitution of Germany after the Second World War was actually looked at by the Allies, by the US, and, and um, was laid down as a foundation for, for us. So we looked um, um, very much to the US as um, somebody that shaped our country, that helped us out um, um, when we were doing the Cold War, when uh, um, the Soviets were in Berlin threatening to take over West Berlin, when we um, had um, um, crises uh, there. Um, I mean, this was the, the center of the Cold War in, in, in Berlin and in Germany, and we always had the US support. And then we had an incredible support Chancellor Kohl had in 1989 when German reunification took place. And it was thanks to the uh, full support of uh, George Bush Sr. at the time of the United States that stood behind Germany and allowed also for a reunification. So um, this goes back a long way. I personally uh, spent my junior year in college, my junior year in high school, actually, in uh, in, in the US, I, my first posting as diplomat was in Chicago. You remember that was uh, when the Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl last time. So, uh, and, and New York is my last posting. And, and uh, personally, I have this, this love for the US. And uh, um, we believe deeply that um, countries like Germany and the US, the European Union and the US, today, the cooperation between our countries is even more important than ever before because the challenges to what our countries stand for, democracy, the rule of law, the respect for international law, social market economy, you, know, you talked about polarization here, um, you know, this is what we, what we stand for. And we have to stay together so that we fight off different models of society, 
aggressive policy as we see from Russia. And there is more need than ever that we work uh, together, that is US and Germany, US and Europe. Yeah, Christoph, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Of course, I'm biased in, in, in favor of your in favor of your perspective, having lived in Franconia for six and a half years and, and as a young captain, uh, you know, patrolling the borders, part of our regiment, the day that East Germany lifted travel restrictions to the West. And so I saw the dramatic results of, of our strong relationship. And, and of course, America's position has been for a long time that we want a strong Europe that's bound together ec economically, but really bound together mainly because of our shared principles and our, our democratic systems of government and institutions. And, and you know, there has been a, a crisis in, in Europe in, in, in recent years, a crisis that I think is analogous to the one that we're facing internally ourselves, this interaction between, uh, between popular, uh, popular movements and, and, and nativist movements, progressivism and populism and so forth. And, and that has affected, I think, the identity within societies, but actually between countries in Europe as well, what would you tell our, our viewers about your perspective on Europe these days and, and what an agenda might be to, to strengthen Europe and, and to, to maybe get over some of the, the problems that, that, that Germany's experienced, that we've seen France experience, um, and, then, and then the tensions between East and West and, and North and South uh, within the Euro European Union? No, um, HR, you're, you're right. We, we face similar problems. Um, we have um, populism here in the, in the US and uh, we have seen what um, um, populism can uh, lead to if it's um, you know, going to the extreme. And um, we have populism in, in Europe. Um, it has to do a lot um, with something that you have said earlier, the social divide um, in countries, um, it has to do a lot, of course, with um, the digital um, um, revolution. It has to do with social media and uh, what uh, can be achieved through social media. We are in this together. We have to fight populism. And um, the only way forward there I see in good governance, I see in education. I think that we have in our societies, we have to see that those who are threatened or who feel threatened by globalization, um, that we give them a home, that um, we um, explain what is going on and that we also um, see to it that the consequences are um, then taken care of so that people feel comfortable in the, in the society. Um, and for this, you need, you need good governance. And um, um, uh, there is no short-term solution, but we, we, we have to um, work together, see what are the best, um, um, what are the best solutions for it. Um, but we cannot, um, I think we, we, we should do this uh, jointly. In Europe, um, of course, there is a lot of um, negative, um, there are a lot of negative trends, but you have to see the overall picture. Um, if you see in Europe, if you see between Germany and France, between 1870 and 1945, in a span of 75 years, we had three major wars, two world wars. Now, now you look back 75 years after 1945 uh, to 2020, 75 years of peace, which has never happened before in Central Europe in such a long period. The, the European Union is the most successful you know, um, uh, interstate um, union worldwide. Um, and uh, um, of course, we, we have uh, problems. The enlargement of the European Union 
um, within a few years. Um, as I said, globalization and the, the feeling of some people of being left behind um, create problems. But we have proven again, and we proved that also at the end of um, last year, when there was a summit in the European Union to agree on the next seven-year budget, um, when we fight together against climate change with very ambitious goals that the European Union set itself in um, now having this big union to fight COVID-19 with one um, big market for the vaccines in Europe. Um, we, we, um, um, we are after all successful, but um, we do see deficits. We have problems in some of the countries, I mean, you alluded to where the rule of law, where the respect for the rule of law is um, has deficits in Poland, that is, we have it in Hungary. And we have to see that within the EU family, we are able to resolve that. And that we, um, uh, by example, by convincing through elections, you know, we come back to um, where everybody follows the basic rules of the European Union. Back to you. Well, Christoph, I think a lot of it is attention, right? Attention between sovereignty and people's feeling that their sovereignty is infringed upon because they join international organizations that, that, that have a say in, in, in how people are governed or in their behavior, uh, but are not accountable to that population. I think it's that same skepticism and that, that has also, uh, we see uh, in the U.S. approach to, uh, to even NATO, right? And, and to the transatlantic relationship in, in, in recent years. And I would just ask you, you know, would you, what would you say to the American people who are skeptical of, in particular, the transatlantic relationship? You mentioned, I think, what is an astounding success, right? It's the prevention of great power conflict for over 75 years. And I think that is largely due to, to NATO uh, and, and to, to, to the U.S. commitment to security uh, in Europe as well. But, but uh, what, what's your vision for the transatlantic relationship? What is your assessment of it today? It was strained, I think, under President Trump, but for understandable reasons with, with Americans' concerns about burden sharing and, and, and so forth. Uh, but but do you think there's an opportunity uh, to invigorate the relationship? And what would your agenda be? You know, Christoph, I hear a lot about, hey, the new Biden administration is going to be a much better relationship with Europe. But of course, we know the relationship is more than, you know, a good atmosphere at cocktail parties, right? It's, it's about what do we work on together? So I'd love to hear your thoughts about what is the health of the transatlantic relationship? Germany's always been an anchor, I think, in that relationship and, and remains today. And, and what should the agenda be? Yes, when you when you look at the transatlantic relationship, and I went back a bit to the post-war period, um, but um, um, let's look at at the situation today. Even today, with China being stronger and everything, the um, the strongest economic relationship, the largest trade flow, the largest flow also on on, on services is between the U.S., uh, North uh, North America, and Europe. So we are still uh, the most important partner um, you know, to each other, EU and, and US, that is. And I think this is a very um, solid um, basis. And we have to continue to um, work on this basis to see that these are um, North America, I would like to you know, include Canada, Mexico, um, Europe. Um, you know, we are the two um, continents where we have this shared um, values and and we have to we have to work together. Of course, um, it's not only about feeling; it's about concrete um, issues. Concrete is trade, 
I think we have to see that um, talking about the agenda that we resolve the um, trade issues that stand um, between us and we have to resolve this. Um, burden sharing, um, yes, um, we have um, to do um, more. Um, we, Germany has, um, and this is of course the argument that you have always brought forward, um, that it was not only the Trump administration, it was the Obama administration saying Germany has to, to do more with regard to the um, military um, budget. Here, you have to understand where we come from in Germany. We come in Germany from a state, uh, from a country that after um, the first, in particular after the Second World War, has um, uh, said that never from German soil do we want to have a war to start with. So it was a very peaceful agenda. We didn't have an army until the, the 50s. Oh, and um, we are integrated in, in NATO. And um, um, we are, have today a strong army. We are participating in a number of peacekeeping operations. But, you know, just always bear in mind the background where Germany comes from. Now, for the budget to rise, to, to increase, we have, uh, you have to go through um, uh, the Bundestag to our Congress. And uh, the same thing for the US. When um, my American colleagues um, uh, criticize about the, the, the contribution to the NATO summit first, I tell them that for the last years, there has been a steady increase. We are not there yet. But at the same time, with all due respect, um, HR, um, look at the um, contribution of the United States to the United Nations. Um, there is an obligation, according to the um, UN um, um, rules that the U.S. has to pay its, uh, its amount, its share. And the U.S. for years um, has not paid it. And um, there are, it's, it's close to a billion dollars that um, the U.S. Um, owes the United Nations. And the argument is, well, Congress doesn't think that highly and it's not possible to get these budget attributions. Our argument is the other way around. You know, we have to get uh, convincing, convince the parliament to, in German, to add to the militarization, to give more money to the army. We have to work at this, um, and we are we are doing it. Now, you are a military background, but um, you know that um, military means alone will not resolve um, a crisis, a conflict. You need to get in there, you need to build society, you need to build institutions, you have to stabilize a, a democracy. Um, and when it comes then to development aid, the so-called ODA um, quote, then um, Germany is, is much uh, further um, from the OSCE um, um, uh, recommendations, which is 0.7 of a GDP. We were a few years ago, we were actually at 0.7. We are a bit below now, but the US is like at 0.2. So we could also say you have to do more with regard to development to solve conflicts in the long run. So it's a bit of give and take. I would also appreciate if from the US perspective, you see our point, you know, US should pay for UN, US should also do on development um, its contribution. And I know we have to do more on, on the military side. On the, um, but back to you, HR, and uh, I don't want to monopolize the discussion. No, no, Christoph, these are, these are important points to, to understand from, from your perspective. And, you know, I think that a, a lot of the reduction in, in defense expenditures and, and, you know, NATO burden sharing occurred in the 1990s, really, under some what turned out to be, in retrospect, flawed assumptions about the nature of the, of the post-Cold War world, right? This idea that you know, the arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over 
closed authoritarian systems and the great power rivalry was a relic of the past. And of course, we've watched very closely right, the, uh, Putin's Kremlin and the increasing aggressiveness on the part of, of Vladimir Putin in his quest to restore Russia to national greatness. The, of course, the 2007 denial of service attacks on Estonia should have been a wake up. The invasion of Georgia in 2008 should have been a wake up. Certainly the annexation of Crimea and invasion of Ukraine. So the, the threat situation has changed considerably, especially uh, in connection with Russia's sustained campaign of political subversion against the West. And I think what is even more dangerous than, than some of these overt acts of aggression that I've mentioned is really this cyber-enabled information warfare we've seen directed against us and Russia's effort to use organized crime networks and other means that allows Russia to achieve its objectives below the threshold of what might elicit a military re response. But of course, with the, 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 the Russian military buildup, the development of new nuclear weapons, the positioning of missiles, there's a, there's a defense component as well. How do you see the threat from Vladimir Putin's Russia? And what more should the US and Germany, the US and the EU, the US and NATO do to, to deter Russian aggression uh, and to ensure that we that we don't have a, a, what would be a disastrous military confrontation uh, with Russia. Yes, HR, I, I see Russia the same way as you do. Um, it is very regrettable that um, Russia under Putin has chosen the way forward as you had uh, described it. Um, instead, after, uh, and you alluded to the 90s as the, the years where we all thought that we were, you know, on the verge of having eternal peace, you know, um, quite the contrary um, has been, um, has been uh, happening. We are very disappointed. Um, the German-Russian relationship is a complicated one. Um, you have to understand when you look back at um, the Second World War that it was Russia that suffered most under uh, Hitler's um, German names, committed um, crimes and aggression. 20 million um, Soviet citizens um, were killed um, during this period. And um, um, so there is also um, um, this, what we have in, 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 in the background of, um, of, uh, of, of Germans. But um, this doesn't excuse anything of what you have described what Russia is doing. Instead of trying to enter into a partnership as uh, we have offered as European Union, as NATO has offered, in, instead of entering into partnership, Russia chose to regain weight, not through partnership, but through um, opposition, polarization and uh, aggression. And um, I, um, I um, um, can only subscribe to the, to the list of uh, what you have said, we have recently, you know, we are we are hosting in Germany right now um, the main opposition politician, uh, Mr. Navalny, who was uh, poisoned by by um, by in in Russia, um, and um, we have uh, the proof even from the you know international watchdog on the chemical of the chemical weapons uh, convention and. Uh, um, we have um, you know the Skripal case. We have other cases. And um, this is really sad, but we have to cope with that situation and uh, we have to um, um, stand up to it. And um, you mentioned the, the Baltic countries, Germany, 
is also participating in the uh, NATO force that is um, uh, stationed in the Baltic countries. Um, we have been, um, Germany has, together with France, took the lead after um, the Russian aggression on um, Ukraine to, to try and stop and reverse what Russia did in, in Ukraine. So we have to stand up there and um, to um, not be naive um, um, and, and um, stand together. And this is one more reason we talked earlier about the agenda that we have between uh, US and, and Europe, between US and Germany, and to counter Russia aggression is, is one of the items. Another item, and maybe we come to discuss that, is also how we cope with um, uh, China's new assertiveness. And um, there again, I would say um, it is another item where there is no alternative but for the US and Europe, US and Germany to stand together. Well, hey, Christoph, let's, let's talk about China. And of course, I'm, I'm thinking of the, 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 the trade deal that, that Germany played an important role in brokering for the EU, whether it gets approved by, uh, you know, by, the, by uh, the, the European Parliament is, is yet to be seen. But it seems a little bit ill-timed to me, Christoph, based on the degree to which China has become very aggressive you know, during the COVID-19 period, of course, repressing news of, of, of human-to-human transmission, not shutting down international travel. Of course, the, the World Health Organization still can't get in to Wuhan to, to, to look at really the origins of, of, the, uh, you know, of, of this pandemic. And then adding insult to injury with wolf warrior diplomacy and the aggression that we've seen with the extension of the party's oppressive arm into, into Hong Kong, uh, more aggression in the South China Sea, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, cultural genocide in Xinjiang. Okay, I could go on about this, obviously, but but it seems to me that Xi Jinping thinks, hey, I, I'm winning, right? And 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 he is winning in his effort, I think, to to co-opt countries, uh, to uh, to to then coerce them, you know, based on the the lore of access to the Chinese market and and uh, and or the or the lore of Chinese investment. Uh, and then, and and then to portray these aggressive actions and unfair trade and economic practices and industrial espionage and cyber attacks in the midst of a pandemic is hey, this is just normal business practices. And you know, I think in some ways Australia should be an object lesson for all of us in terms of not making ourselves susceptible to the coercive power of China. Uh, you know, I, I would just love your thoughts on on. How do you how do you balance this right? How do you balance really the economic relationship with China, and and the realization I think that all of us have come to, that the Chinese Communist Party is not going to play by the rules, is not going to to liberalize its economy uh, or its its form of governance. Yes, um, on China, it's another item for our transatlantic agenda. It's another item where we have to work together. And again, I would uh, say that um, what we have to defend here is what um, you know, the basis, um, at least uh, for, for my, my country, very clearly, that is what we call the rules-based international um, order. We have to fight for international law. We have to see to it that international humanitarian law, international human rights law is, is observed. And, um, um, you know, I speak to you right now as the ambassador of Germany to the United Nations, uh, where we were sitting in the Security Council for the last two years. And I can tell you, we have had a number of serious um, um, uh, confrontations with, uh, with uh, China. 
Um, just to give you give you an example um, on um, um, the situation of the Uyghurs. So we had actually under Germany's leadership this year, we um, took up in the so-called third committee, the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations, we took an initiative um, actually to get uh, countries together to put this on the agenda and condemn what they're doing. And um, this was done last year. And from one year to the other, we went from 23 to 39 countries that joined, joined us in actually um, condemning what uh, the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs. And this is the only method. Um, I think that we have to um, work together um, and see as a, as, you know, as a union of countries that we defend the rules-based international order, that we, res that we respect the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And therefore, we cannot do that individually. We have to stand together and, 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 and fight this. And, and this, I think, is, should be on the agenda. South China Sea, same thing. There, uh, China is clearly violating international law. There has been um, you know, the, the um, uh, arbitration by um, court under the international law of the sea that clearly said that um, what China is doing in the South China Sea is violating international law. And we have to just stand up and we have to, um, we, we, we have to um, um, uh, do this together. You mentioned Australia. Um, here in my final speech in the, in the Security Council, when I um, said, well, I'm now close to retirement, I look at what, what happens to retired diplomats, and I mentioned the, um, the case of, Canadian of a Canadian diplomat who was taken hostage by China because of um, uh, you know, the Huawei um, extradition um, um, uh, issue between Canada and the US, and, and Canada just um, arbitrarily um, um, then um, put, took hostage uh, Michael um, um, uh, Michael Spavor, and, Michael Spavor and Kovrig. Yeah. So, yes. And I think there we have to stand together and we have to um, uh, call a spade a spade, but we can only do it together. So not say, well, let's not hope that what happened to Canada, what happened to Australia does not happen to us. No, we have to, we have to stand together, defend international law and defend human rights law. Let me briefly um, say something about the um, investment um, um, agreement. First, this is um, for trade relations, a big, um, a big advantage of European integration. We are one trading bloc. The European Union is um, uh, negotiating um, this investment um, treaty, and it was seven years of negotiations. And um, um, maybe now under the circumstances of, uh, of um, the, the end of last year, it was um, a possibility to, um, to conclude the agreement. One can ask, discuss the timing, but uh, it was possible to conclude it. And what does this treaty do? It does guarantee um, and um, make safer investment in China and have China also um, adhere to international law with regard to the protection of, of investments and uh, to also see to it that we have a fairer um, opportunity on the, on the Chinese market. Both the US and Germany, Europe, we do have very intensive trade with, with China. Uh, we have investments and um, we have to be clear, um, trade overall um, has um, benefited our societies overall. I mean, it has for individual um, sections of the economy had deficits, but overall, 
um, China's um, rise has also had beneficial consequences for our economies. And to protect and safeguard our investments, I think it's worthwhile. So one can dispute it. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, uh, um, uh, I, I uh, acknowledge this, but at the same time, I think uh, uh, it doesn't pr uh, prevent us, quite the contrary, to continue to insist on what I said before, that China has to go by the rules and we cannot allow um, China um, um, to now um, present and try to implement a new, um, um, you know, a new international um, behavior, um, new, you know, international laws and uh, actually rewrite um, the Charter of the UN and the Universal Declaration of um, um, Human Rights. We have to defend that. And again, this is something that we should do together. Christoph, of course, you know, I think we just need a healthy dose of skepticism because, of course, China did agree to play by the rules when it joined the World Trade Organization in, in, in 2001. Uh, Xi Jinping is now an environmentalist, apparently, but, but China is building about 70 coal-fired plants a, a year uh, and, and poisoning the world with CO2, uh, not only with uh, plants it's, it's building inside of uh, China, but, but externally in, in Africa in, in particular. It seems that you know th this this community of shared destiny really means a a, a relationship of servitude uh, with, with countries. So I I do, I do I am concerned that that we are in some ways you know underwriting our own demise with with investments in China that also provide cover for some of the inefficiencies in their economic model an economic model that's I think designed to advance their geostrategic interests uh, pri pri primarily. But, uh, but this will remain a huge agenda item for us. Uh, and I think what we're seeing, Christoph, is, is more and more an integration of economic policy and foreign policy and national security. And I think in one of the areas where this is, 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 uh, is most obvious is in the area of energy security, climate security, and how that interacts with national security. I'd like to ask your, you know, uh, what Germany's position is these days on those interconnected challenges of energy security and, and, and climate security. Uh, I know that without the benefit of nuclear power, it's been a struggle for, for, for Germany to go to all renewables uh, using, uh, using natural gas as a bridge uh, to renewables is a viable strategy. It's working here in the United States with the availability of cheap natural gas as a result of the fracking revolution. Uh, but, but of course, the security issue involved with that is Nord Stream 2 and, 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 uh, and the danger of giving the Kremlin uh, coercive power uh, over Germany from an energy security perspective. Could you just share with our viewers how Germany is, is viewing these interconnected challenges now and, and, uh, and what you think is a good way forward and if there maybe are opportunities for, uh, for the United States and Germany and Europe to work together on these interconnected problems? Yes. First of all, um, with regard to energy, there is, um, from my perspective, no alternative but to get away from um, CO2. We, we uh, have to protect our planet and we have to go to, um, to green energy. Germany has been in the lead there. Um, um, in the 1980s already, we had the Green Party in, in, in Germany um, established and um, Today, all parties in Germany are green parties, and we have committed to 
um, lower uh, the CO2 emissions to become um, CO2 neutral by 2050. And um, this is consensus. So we work very, very hard um, on this. We have, um, uh, we are closing our last coal power plants um, um, in a few years. We also decided against nuclear power because we believe that um, what you do with the waste, what you do with accidents, and um, after what's happened in Japan, um, Germany decided to totally lose nuclear and, and leave nuclear power, which leads, of course, to the need to um, invest even more in, in green energy. And when you travel through Germany, you will see um, all the, um, the, the wind um, um, windmills, well, they are not mills, but you see all how to how we get alternative energy from different sources, and we are committed to do this. Um, and um, um, uh, we, we and um, you know, as I said, their political willingness is there. Nord Stream. Um, one can debate it, of course. Um, first of all, um, we have been criticized um, very much for the. Um, um, amount of gas we get from um, Russia and we buy even independent of Nord Stream. This is 13 billion per year. But what my American friends um, never realize is that at the same time, the US is importing 11 billion um, uh, dollars every year from Russia because um, the specialized um, um, oil products that you use to import from Venezuela no longer comes from there, but comes from Russia. So um, it, it, Russia receives 11 billion from the US, from the US um, um, every year. Um, um, now, it is um, um, a mutual dependence, but I would even claim the dependence of Russia from Germany is higher than the other way around. What does that mean? That um, if for one reason or another, from one day to the other, we will say, okay, we don't take um, Russian uh, gas anymore. Um, of course, there would be um, there would be problems, but at the same time, um, there are alternatives. We can get um, liquefied natural gas. We have now um, the, um, the um, how do you call them the harbors that can uh, get uh, liquefied natural gas from the U.S. Um, or from uh, um, from the Gulf, from Qatar. So. We are um, dependent to a certain degree, but um, this is something that even in, in, in fairly short range, we can do it. It's a question of price. Um, with the low um, oil and gas price right now, I think the US uh, LNG is not competitive, but um, you don't know which direction it goes. So um, it is um, something that we have had, um, I remember in the 60s of uh, um, last century or 70s, we had the first deals with Russia um, and um, it was part, it's still part of this agenda with Russia that we have um, stemming from our history and what I said earlier um, with uh, um, you know, relations with so Russia. Willy, this is Willy Brandt and Ostpolitik. This is really brand and Ostpolitik, but it was even before under Konrad Adenauer, you know, the first yeah. chancellor of Germany, um, you know, his task was um, uh, to get the last German prisoners of war out of Russia. And uh, some of them stayed for 10 years and they got out in 1954, 1955. And, and so we had to deal with Russia. And again, you know, our, um, what we did to Russia during the Second World War. 
This does not excuse anything what Russia is doing um, worldwide, that they have their, what they do in, in Syria, where they um, support um, uh, Assad, what they do in Libya, where they have their, their um, militias, what they do in other countries worldwide, um, where they are, um, and in particular, there is their cyber wars and, and involvement in the US. They did the same in Germany. They, in Germany, they also uh, hacked the, the German parliament. So um, no illusions about what, what Putin is uh, up to. Well, Christoph, along this line of, of, of trade and, and economic development and, and growth, uh, of, of another area in, that, that uh, is, is, I think, of growing importance in terms of security as well as economic growth and development is rare earth metals, for example, uh, in, in connection with green technologies, right? A, an electric car uses nine times more rare earth metals than, a, than an internal combustion engine, uh, for example. And I'm just using this really as an example of the degree to which economic security and national security are inter intertwined and interconnected. What do you think ought to be the most important items on the agenda for the U.S.-German, the U.S.-European Union relationship to, uh, to, to work together uh, to, to preserve peace uh, as, as well as to, as to, to generate economic growth and, and, and development uh, that, that's, that's necessary to, you know, to build a better world, more pro prosperous world for generations to come? Yes, um, what a question. I mean, now what's the agenda? Let me start with something um, which has to do more with the method than with the substance. And um, there I go back uh, without uh, flattering you, HR, with our um, common time when you became National Security Advisor, that um, you mentioned the so-called quint where we got together with our British, French, and Italian colleagues, and uh, built kind of an agenda, and said, "What uh, what are the items on foreign policy that we have to work together?" I think what we would appreciate very much in Europe is if a new um, U.S. administration under President Biden um, would depart from what is usually um, U.S. policy. What is usual policy? There is a new team. The new team gets together. The new team starts into interagency process to set policy. Once this policy is set, um, it is usually carved in stone. And it's very difficult to get then, you know, when then in the implementation comes to say, oh, well, they are allies and we have to see how we get the, take the allies um, along. The process that we really hope the new administration will take is a process where from the very beginning, allies are taken into the process of defining what are the objectives, how do we get there, how do we work together so that we, we, we do it together. I think that would be extremely, um, extremely helpful if this, um, if this, uh, if this happened. Um, now on the agenda, of course, there are um, issues that are um, short term. Um, we have to see how we, um, you know, the, the, the relationship with Iran, what do we do with the Iran deal and how do we get um, uh, then the tensions uh, there and um, the um, uh, Trump administration in its final days makes life even more difficult than it already is by, for instance, now um, telling that the, the Houthis are a terrorist organization, uh, which they, they, they probably are, but by, by putting it that way, makes um, um, you know, humanitarian aid, makes a political solution, again, much more, more difficult. Um, um, so 
on on Iran, we have to to re resolve um, this as, as soon as possible. We have to see that we um, work together right away on Libya. That we see that we what I mentioned before on Yemen that we uh, end the suffering of the people there so that we get. But then in the long term, we have to see how we tackle the um, the most important issues. How do we cope with the Russian aggression? How do we cope with uh, China's um, um, uh, more aggressive behavior. Um, and there, we, I believe that we have to um, um, form this alliance between Europe and the US, but it's not enough. We have to reach out to countries um, outside. Uh, we have to reach out to countries in, in Africa, um, countries where you also promote democracy, the rule of law, and see to it that they have a natural interest to work with countries like, like ours. And we have to promote that. We have to invest there and work together in partnership. Um, it's not always that easy when we Europeans or Americans come and then we go to countries and tell them, Yo, listen, this is how you should do it. But we have to do this together. This um, idea of really partner uh, to partnering. I think it was George Bush Jr. who once said, um, um, why don't we uh, look for a, um, a, um, a partners in leadership? I think that should be what we um, what we should achieve um, between Germany and the US, between Europe and and the US. Christoph, thanks for talking about the work that we did together. I really think that is it is a model of the approach, right? We framed problems together, we set our agenda together. We for the US side, we work collaboratively across the departments and, and agencies to. You know, identify you know, really what were the opportunities to advance our interests and and uh, and this is burden sharing, right? So for Americans who are skeptical about about sustained commitments abroad, it's through the relationships with our allies and partners that we can accomplish a lot at a relatively low cost. And and uh, and I think the agenda that you laid out for the administration is is are exactly the topics that we need uh, that, that we need to, to take on together. You know, I I would like to just ask you. Uh, just a, a one one uh, final specific question, and then then a general question at the end in terms of advice to a, a new administration. But on, on the problem associated with jihadist terrorism and and this catastrophe that we see ongoing right across the Middle East and and then and then into North Africa and the Sahel of this sectarian civil war, as well as jihadist terrorist organizations that are that seem to be gaining strength uh, these days and and gaining strength at a time when there is an argument here in the United States for ending endless wars and, and disengaging. How do you see the jihadist threat? Uh, and, and what do you think is necessary for us to work together uh, to secure our, our citizens and, and our way of life from those who are committed to using mass murder as their principal tactic, I think, in a, in a war against all humanity? Two, two um, proposals. Um, one, the obvious one, um, we have to prevent um, our catastrophes like 9-11 uh, uh, and uh, um, other terrorist um, attacks that uh, you have seen here in the U.S. We have seen in, in, in Germany, we have seen in Berlin in the you know, Christmas uh, period. Um, we have seen in France, we have seen in so many countries. So our intelligence has to work uh, uh, together. Um, and we have to um, uh, we have to to cope with these challenges, and, and only cooperation between these services can help there. But 
let me underline the what for me is as important, and this is to look at the root causes. Um, there was the the UN has done um, in 2017 a study on jihadism in um, in the Sahel, and they had um, um, then they they looked at the prison, talked to jihadists, young jihadists, and asked why have you become a terrorist? What were the reasons? 95% of these people, um, um, or only 5% said religious reasons. We do this for it. All the rest said we did it because we were marginalized in our societies. There's corruption. Um, the security forces were biased against us, it's often minorities. Um, there is bad governance. Uh, we don't have a chance um, for education. Um, uh, this is, by the way, why jihadists always try to close schools. Um, you know, we don't get education, and the only hope we have is um, to go into um, to into jihadism. There, we get a gun, we get something to eat, we get some obscure objective. But it's um, so. So I think we have to. But of course, once they are convinced jihadists, um, you you cannot re-educate them, but you have to fight them. But we have to look at the root causes. And now I come back to what I said earlier. How do we gain countries in Africa to join us you know, in, in our objectives? We have to strengthen um, good governance. We have to build institutions in, in African and other countries. We have to see to it that um, 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 leaders uh, are responsible and um, that elections are actually carried through. And um, I think there, and we have to then invest in the youth. We have to see to it that people go to school. Um, demography is a huge problem. Um, demogra demographics in countries like Niger are a nightmare and you cannot create so many jobs as you have new young people. So we have to, we have to look at that. But um, please, um, HR, I know you come more from the security background, but look at the root causes. And uh, this is something that we really have to, to look at because otherwise um, we'll fight um, the head of the um, Hydra and then, um, you know, but the, the heads will, will grow uh, again and again. So this is what we, what we have to do. Christoph, I think that's a great perspective. It is, it's a long-term problem, right? And we can't take a short-term approach to a long-term problem. And, and I agree with you. I tend to think of it as a, as a cycle of, of ignorance and despondency that then allows these groups to foment hatred and then use that hatred to justify violence against innocents. And then in that, those insecure environments, nobody's getting educated. So it, that cycle is perpetuated across multiple generations. And well, I, can, I can't thank you enough, Christoph, for this perspective. The last question I want to ask you is just a broad one. There is a new U.S. administration coming in on January 20th, the Biden administration. You know a lot of the people who are coming back into the administration because you've, you've been at this for, for quite a long time and, and, uh, and, and you are such a you know, seasoned and experienced diplomat. Um, what, what advice do you have for the Biden administration and, and just in general? Uh, and what do you think are the greatest opportunities and what do you think ought to be the, the, top, the very top items on the agenda beyond those or maybe just to amplify those that you've already mentioned? Yes, um, let me turn back to, um, to the US. Um, it's a country um, that uh, you know, saved Germany after the Second World War. And when I was young, you know, John F. Kennedy was our hero in Germany. As I said, George uh, Bush um, uh, Sr. made it possible um, for Germany to reunify uh, 
U.S. troops stood in Germany. You yourself were there. Um, hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops um, were stationed in Germany to protect the West, um, to protect uh, against um, uh, the Soviet Union at the, at the time. And um, I believe um, the um, uh, Russian troops in, in Europe, we didn't discuss that, but the presence of American, sorry, the presence of American troops in Europe remains key for Europe's security, but also for US security. After all, you know, these are the closest uh, allies. For a new administration, I live in this country. Um, I see the horrible polarization in this country. And what I hope is that um, somehow um, President Biden will succeed in bridging this divide that we have um, in, in this country. We have it between uh, the political parties um, we have it um, in society. Um, we have um, um, the winners and losers of um, globalization. The income disparity in this country is the highest of any um, democratic free nation. And I think something has to be done this because this leads to this polarization. Um, so I hope that um, it will be possible with somebody as experienced as President Biden, um, um, uh, that um, we'll have this healing phase in um, in the in the United States. For for us to have, um, we we need a strong U.S. Uh, United States as a partner. You have bailed us out in our history so often. We we need you, but we want you to be healthy, a healthy um, uh, society. Um, healthy country um, that um, copes with uh, the many problems um, um, here, and um, I think there we can learn a lot from each uh, from each other how we cope uh, our health system um, and um, um, other uh, other um, issues, infrastructure issues. I think we can work together, but I, I really hope that um, um, we won't see the horrible polarization that we have witnessed during the last four years and. This is culminating point a week ago, but um, um, in Washington, but that we have a country that is um, again at ease with uh, with itself, and um, uh, this would be an enormous contribution to what we have to uh, master together. And this is to work worldwide for um, the survival of what we uh, HR you and I believe in, and that is human rights, the respect for international law, and peaceful um, cooperation between between countries. Uh, so that um, the people can live a, a life uh, without um, terrorism, without fear of um, aggression and uh, you know, fighting the pandemic, which is you know, for you in California, for us in Germany, the number one issue right now. We will only cope with this when we work together and fight together, um, look that we eliminate these viruses and, and cope with it together. So it's an appeal for, for healing and for cooperation. Michelle, thank you. What, what a great, what a great uh, note to end the interview on. What a privilege it's been to serve with you. Vielen Dank for, for, a, for, for joining us uh, at, the, at the Hoover Institution to help us learn about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Thank you very much, HR. Thank you for your friendship. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.